Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 104, the one about why YouTube channels fail, Kotler's marketing masterpiece, and the film Heat. Let's get on with the show. And welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back with more news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, my co-host, a marketing speaker and consultant who spent his whole career helping his customers keep their marketing simple but effective. He's the author of Cat's Master Marketing Plans and the creator of the Roger video series. I give you Mr. Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, my co-host is a digital marketing veteran is a speaker, trainer, and advisor with nearly three decades of experience. He enjoys revealing visual storytelling techniques to help you build better online campaigns faster. I give you all the way from La France, Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much. And thank you to your viewers and listeners. We really appreciate your support. We are today recording episode 104, Roger. 104 do you know it's uh it's just a little thing but when i do the um the very small audio overdub for the audio version of the podcast which we put up on um, captivate it it just feels weird to have to say 104 as opposed to 87 and uh, 92 and stuff because 104 takes up more space and and I've only got like about 30 seconds to get the title of the podcast in before the music uh, fades out just a little thing I thought I'd mention it well <laughs> if I may share my little thing so for people regular listeners and viewers you know that we share the work with Roger so Roger looking after the audio experience I look after the uh, YouTube so I received a message from YouTube saying happy anniversary three years oh. on youtube and and all those things and on the subject of which we've got some new subscribers on the channel so i'm gonna give a shout out to aj de chanel who has a channel on youtube called thinking outside the blog which i think is a wonderful name oh, we've fantastic got, yes i agree nigel hawkins mason we've got simran sidhu a filmmaker who left a lovely comment on our marketing review of the terminator and finally, shout out to Ghostbusters Collector 8593. No point to guessing which movie this uh, <laughs> gentleman or lady is a big fan of. And they left a couple of comments on our marketing review of Ghostbusters saying that it's probably one of the best, best marketing campaigns out there. And I would agree. It's probably one of the top 10 for me. Fantastic. It's great to see people um commenting and and sharing so thank you for that i'll back up what pascal said thank you so much for um subscribing oh absolutely you know we, we do this i mean granted this started as you and i having conversation to keep you know kind of madness and boredom at bay during the pandemic three years later with a lovely audience as people have mentioned a moment ago we're going to go through segments we've got lots to go through to be a source of ideas and stimulating your imagination for marketing but it was your turn to select the film for film marketing marketing and they take us back to the mid-90s. Yeah, we're going to go back to 1995. Craig, that's nearly 30 years ago, Pascal. It just <laughs> it just seems ridiculous to say that, but we are going to talk about probably one of the best cop um, versus villain films ever filmed. We are going to be talking about Heat, starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Absolutely superb film. I can't wait to have a conversation about this. But before we do so, let's begin with our very first segment in the news. Research from the Chartered Institute of Marketing has found that 49% of marketers are wary of working on sustainability projects in case they are accused of greenwashing. 
Okay, well, according to a survey by the conference board, marketers are mixed on the impact of AI, with more than 40% expecting improvement to work quality and creativity, and nearly 30% expecting a decline. UK discount retailer Wilco has called in the administrators, some are pointing to the impact of the pandemic, Brexit and inflation. Others are suggesting that the marketing strategy was simply broken. Shopify has finally launched Sidekick, a first-of-its-kind AI-enabled commerce assistant for online traders, able to answer their questions as they launch and scale their business. Walt Disney is shutting down its division for developing metaverse strategies, known as the Next Generation Storytelling and Consumer Experiences Unit. According to Phil Rowley at CampaignLive.co.uk, marketers should reframe their idea of what the metaverse is and where its biggest chances of success has always been in the gaming space. Beer fans can download the Desperados Dance Club app, then turn on the pedometer on their phones and party with their friends to get tickets, VIP access, artist merch and more. Lazy Boy, the brand behind the famous recliner chairs, launched a new marketing campaign, Long Live the Lazy, and a prototype model called the Decliner with a D, an AI-powered recliner that creates a cancellation excuse via SMS by pulling its handle. Fantastic, Lazy Boy. <laughs> We're going to come back to that because I have a story to tell you about Lazy Boys, but I'm going to go back to the very, very start. This in the news um, selection on this occasion feels almost like told you so moment for mm. you and I and for many marketers out there. Let's begin with the, the first two because it could almost be combined, this, the fear of being accused of greenwashing and people being pretty split between, um, in terms of the impact of AI improvement on quality or simply a decline on quality and creativity this is something that you and I have, have observed you know for a while now yeah and it's it's interesting isn't it I, I, I was watching a news item on on TV the other day um, and the guy being interviewed on TV was somebody that I know and somebody that I've um, been out for dinner with a few times when he was a journalist and he had a really hard time because the journalist was basically trying to stitch him up um, I won't I won't go into the, the what the subject was it was actually about um, LBGT um, but the the TV presenter was trying to get him to say something which I knew would annoy people and, and offend people and he was trying to avoid being dro drawn into that discussion and it just made me realize that so many of the things that we do these days are just polarized aren't they you're either right or you're wrong or you're at one extreme and the other and we never seem to have that common ground in the middle where we can just have a discussion about it so i'm not surprised that people are frightened now 50 percent of people are wary of working on sustainability projects because they don't want to be accused of greenwashing but actually they probably should be working on sustainability projects because that will help you know keep the planet going for many, many more millennia so that we can continue to survive. And yet people are frightened of talking about this. And, and it worries me that we're in this world now where we can't have a healthy debate. You've got to be at one extreme of the debate or at the other. And to your point, we now know, and that's been reported that in the news and, and also our content spotlights, you know, it is a fact that consumers want to align themselves and spend their money where there is, there is a demonstration of value and contribution to the wider community and so on. So it, it's it's I think it's a great shame. And I think you're absolutely right to pinpointing the the um 
either the, the the traditional media, as you mentioned, TV, but also what's happening on on social media, which is about headline grabbing, attention grabbing. I mean, I, I despair sometimes, and even some platforms that should know better. When you read that the, the title, you kind of go, and then actually, it's nothing at all, yeah. as you know, uh, suggested by, by by the headline. So, so for me, it's 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 a question of. Um, I want to be able to operate in in a world, a business world, and in, in a society where brands and you know young entrepreneurs and, and online traders can be allowed to experiment, get it wrong, share their stories, share you know the kind of highs and lows of what it's like to run a business without being attacked mm. by you know media or pseudo journalism. Yeah, absolutely right. No, it, it, it's it's really sad. I mean, you know. The, the sustainability thing is a good case in point. You, if what would be wrong is having a sustainability project and then bombarding your clients with emails, for example, day in day out, talking about it. That that to me is the bad thing. It's doing something good and communicating it badly. But to be frightened of doing something good because you might upset people who don't agree with it is just wrong. No, I I completely. <laughs> I, I totally agree, and, and and I think you you really have um, point. You're pointing out what's happening with regard to mood, but also stimulating the the wrong kind of mood. And and I think to your point, yeah, anyone should have just a balance view, be neutral, thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I don't know. I don't have the information, so I'll you know take a punt and assume that this brand claims are not false about you know whatever they are supporting as as a. Um, as, as, a, as an activity and if i am in doubt let me do my research but i'm not going to rely on some journalists or some kind of social media you know kind of armchair warrior to to, yeah. to kind of dictate you know, my, my views let me move on to i suppose from kind of ai greenwashing to the metaverse mm-hmm. and people <laughs> will know you know i think of the metaverse but the walt disney story and this comment from finale at campaign live is literally confirming what you and I have been saying for quite a while, which is you're really making your life very, very difficult if you're attempting to bring an audience into a completely different environment, which is also dictated by access to equipment, which are you know those really still to this day pretty ugly, bulky, and comfortable headsets when they are already elsewhere. And I think you know, thanks to you, and your interest in Fortnite, um, which I'm doing rather well, I, I must say, although I've spent most of my time hiding from others, which is why I do so well. <laughs> but, you know, you you brought to the In The News segment many a time stories of brands using Fortnite as a platform to promote themselves. And to me, the Walt Disney and the gaming space is, is almost one of those where I, surely I can't be smarter than the, the team at Walt Disney when I said to them, that was daft idea. Just bring your storytelling and you know what is the term that you use? The next generation storytelling, but take it where people are, which is the gaming space. Yeah. I mean, we said it on this very show, didn't we? <laughs> on this very show that the metaverse would be perfectly suited to the gaming environment. And we also said on this show that the hype surrounding the metaverse um, was so overblown because people weren't doing the absolute basics. They weren't researching their customers and saying, what is the problem that the metaverse fixes? And they finally agreed with us. There isn't one, (laughs) unless you've got that gaming environment, or there are some use cases that we do know about um, where it it can 
work as well. But the hype from a couple of years ago where we were all going to be sitting in our, in rooms wearing headsets and having meetings and with cartoons instead of ourselves absolute nonsense and of course it's it's come out in the wash and i think we should as well use that historically as a, as an example when the next big fad hits us now obviously we've but we've gone through the chat gtp ai um fad that sort of seems to be simmering down a bit but undoubtedly be something else next year or the year after that everybody will lose their shit over and we've just got to remember what happened here with the metaverse by all means, use new technology. We absolutely have to new, use new technology, but work out what problem that technology is fixing by talking to customers and then develop the product or the service or the solution to fix that problem. Don't just build something because you think it's great and that it will eventually take off. You have to do the basics. And for sure, we must allow for R&D. You know, R&D is very important. So of course it made sense for... Walt Disney to explore the metaverse, to do some a business case, to do some experiments and so on. But from a marketing communication and engagement, it reminds me of um, a statement that I sometimes share during the workshops with my clients where I say, you know, you've got two options. You can launch your own magazine or you can negotiate you being included in an existing trusted magazine. Which option is going to be the, the path of least pain and suffering? When you think, when you think about it. So, so what I will say though, I am almost disappointed for the team working for that next generation storytelling because I think the metaverse is now part of the mix. And it feels almost like quite a, a drastic decision to close the entire division because there has to be space for innovation and, and research. But um, talking about innovation and creativity, so um, out of interest, do you like the Desperados beer? Never heard of it. Do you <laughs> never tried it? <laughs> well, um, you mentioned many a time during the introduction that um, I am currently in France, so very lucky. Just walking distance to the beach, they have beach bars, and the Desperado with a bit of um, green lime on top of the bottle is basically the drink of, of choice. Uh, I don't think I'd be downloading the app, but the lazy boy going for the decliner. And the long live the lazy. That's what exactly what brands should be doing. You know, literally, forgive me, leaning onto their what they stand for and creating a campaign of its own right. Yeah, I mean that's fun and it's and it's relevant and it works. And uh, we should be seeing much more of that sort of creative stuff. I was mentioning earlier that I have a story about the Lazy Boys. So um, made famous, I think, by one episode of Friends, you know, when Joey and Chandler get to Lazy Boy chairs and literally spend days and days not moving from the apartment with the, the sentence, you know, inside good, outside bad. So I got, I, I'm not convinced he was the official Lazy Boys, but I, I got a version of the Lazy Boy. And, and I tried to mimic that scene, you know, when they literally reclined in sync in an episode of Friends. But I was a bit carried away and I did it a bit too briskly to the point <laughs> where I toppled over in a literally um, backwards and I ended up with the almighty clatter on uh, on the floor. And then he came running in saying, you know, I think you're taking this far too seriously. You meant to recline gently. But yeah, the, the idea of the um, decliner whereby if you're invited somewhere, you pull the handle and we automatically auto-generate a excuse as to why you can't go to a friend's party, perhaps because <laughs> they're dancing away with the Desperados uh, party app because you'd rather <laughs> stay in. But no, I thought that the long view of the lazy for me, um, people take the time to research and look at the advert. That is what you know, I've mentioned in, in the news, which is consumers want brands 
to to use wit and to make to really claim what 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 they stand for, and, and I think we should see that more and more often. Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. All right. Well, listen, it's always a pleasure to hear your views and first-hand reactions to the latest news items. But let's slow things down with our next segment, The Content Spotlight. Now, in this segment, Roger and I bring to the virtual table an article, a video, a podcast, even a book, anything that can help us reflect on what it means to be a marketer and business owner in today's economy. So, Roger, what is your selection for episode 104? Okay, so I'm going to talk about YouTube this week. Um, now, you always introduce me as um, the creator of the Rog Vlog video series in the introduction to Two Geeks in a Marketing podcast. Now, I've recently passed uh, 3,000 subscribers on my um, YouTube channel, which, of course, I'm absolutely delighted about. But when I when I look at some of the channels out there that have got hundreds of thousands, if not millions, if not hundreds of millions of views, I realize that I'm still actually a very small channel, but I'm enjoying it, and I Will continue to create videos as long as I can think of interesting things to do. But I came across this article, which actually is useful for me to reflect upon as somebody who's just hit a milestone, but probably is useful for anybody who's thinking of either starting a YouTube channel or is just getting into it and maybe is in a similar position to me with a few hundred or a few thousand subscribers. The heading of the article is nine common reasons why new YouTube channels fail. It's on a website I've not come across before. It's called make use of uh, make use of.com. And the article is written by Jose Luan Singh Jr. Um, so obviously it, there's a bit of preamble and it says that you can make money out of YouTube and a lot of people um, get into it from a combination of just liking making films, liking making vlogs, whatever it is, but also they have this uh, desire to build a community and ultimately to make money out of it. So he then goes through these nine reasons why YouTube channels fail. And a lot of it is down to perception. And the number one thing is getting into YouTube just for the money uh, and the and the bottom line is there are people out there who are making absolute stacks of cash out of YouTube but they have millions hundreds of thousands millions of subs- subscribers and they will get a decent income and a decent lifestyle from that but you have to be honest you are not going to make millions from YouTube unless you get into that realm now I've got 3000 subscribers and I am monetized on YouTube and I can absolutely guarantee that that I can tell you that I could probably buy myself a couple of bottles of desperados a month <laughs> on the uh, amount of money that I get from YouTube so the bottom line is when you start it don't go in there thinking that you're going to be able to give up your day job and live off the income from YouTube because it ain't going to happen unless you hit the massive numbers of subscribers and views. And we are talking millions and millions of views here um, because they are only going to pay you a tiny, tiny little bit. The second thing is starting with zero following. Now, if you start a YouTube channel, you're not going to have any followers. And starting from scratch is very, very difficult. So what um, the author is saying is it's maybe a good job to probably start on an easier channel, something like Instagram or TikTok or even Twitter, so that you've already got um, a bit of a community um, or an audience who you can then 
cross-pollinate, I guess, with your YouTube channel. And and this resonates with me, actually, because I guess when I started my YouTube channel, I already had more of a following on Twitter and on Instagram on, and on LinkedIn, and therefore I've been able to post. When I put up a new video, I've been able to link Twitter, Instagram, etc., Facebook to the YouTube channel to increase views and that and hopefully get more subscribers so it's worth having a think about your audience if you've got zero followers on youtube where can you immediately start with more uh, of a community and that could be another social media platform the third thing is a lot of people fail because they blindly try to copy successful youtube channels so let's face it you're not going to be mr beast um you're not going to be casey neistat um, don't go in there and try to copy them because A, you won't do it as well as they do, and B, people see through it. You've got to find your own voice, find your own style, and work on developing that. Number four made me laugh a bit because, again, in the early days, I guess this is absolutely spot on, consistently using the same sound effects and audio. Um, now, of course, this resonates with me as well, because in the early days when I st started doing my videos, I would just use the music that YouTube allows you to use copyright free. And that's a very limited amount. I learned down the line. Now I use Epidemic Sound. We've talked about Epidemic Sound in um, marketing tech and apps on the show. Uh, so again, don't use the same sound effects and the same audio. Spice it up a little bit. Um, you know, get some different sound effects and somewhere else. Make your own sound effects. You know, carry a microphone around with you. Slam a few doors. Um, you know, mow the lawn or take some sounds of trains going past or cars going past. Make it sound different. Um, the number five again is very interesting. Don't limit yourself to popular niches. And again, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I, I tend to favor the sort of travel type of vlog, but that's a very overused space. There are so many travel vloggers. Again, what he's, what he's saying here is try to find a niche for yourself, maybe just something slightly different. Um, I mean, it, it was interesting. Um, I, I tend to do a vlog about the Edinburgh Festival. I've done it for the last couple of years, but I said to Tricia this year, do you know what? I'm just not going to do a vlog about the Edinburgh Festival because so many people do vlogs about the Edinburgh Festival. The chances of somebody actually watching mine are quite low because there's so many of them. But a way to stand out would probably to be do a video of me in, Ed in Edinburgh saying, do you know what, this festival is absolutely awful. It absolutely sucks. It's the worst festival ever just because it stands out um, because I've done something a little bit different. Number six, mim mimicking other YouTubers' editing and videography. I guess that's a bit, bit like don't try copying Mr. Beast, don't try copying Casey Neistat. Again, come up with your own type of style and your own type of cinematography number seven don't use corny thumbnails and clickbait titles now admittedly there are people out there who have huge followings and some of their um, thumbnails are very clickbaity and some of their titles are very clickbaity but they've already got millions of subscribers so they can sort of get away with it if you're starting out and you haven't got the following people are not going to forgive you for clickbait and then you're not going to be able to grow purely on the basis of clickbait so you've got to be honest and tell people what they're going to watch and, and so that when they click on your video their expectations are, are, are realized and number eight 
Don't rely on the AdSense revenue, as I said earlier, unless you have got hundreds and thousands, millions of subscribers. You know, you, you're being paid on a YouTube video something like 0.003 dollars per view. So that is what? Um, a 30th of a cent. So it's going to take you a long time to earn a lot of money. And number nine, don't invest in YouTube courses and tools. There are loads of people out there selling courses to tell you how you can crack YouTube. And those courses usually cost $97 because the seven always makes you buy, doesn't it? And a lot of those courses are just rubbish. But people are desperate for that quick fix, for that quick uh, shortcut, aren't they? And unfortunately, sometimes they'll buy into these courses and they won't get anything from them other than a $97 hole in their wallet. So quite some interesting things to think about in that article. I quite liked it. It made me smile a few times because it, it resonated with me as a YouTube creator. So what do you think, Pascal? I, I like it a lot. And I have to tell you that number two, I went, oh, wow, that's yeah. very, very smart. That's very, very smart. But as I was listening to you, I was literally projected back in time into the mini conversation I've had with my customers and trainees, where you know, someone would say to you, I want to become a YouTuber. And I always thought that was a strange statement. Someone would say, I want to be an influencer. I said, no, well, you mean you want to become a media production company? Do you want to become a performer? Do you want to become an actor? Do you want to become a video journalist? But being a YouTuber doesn't exist. You know, you, you have to have... A professional yes. undertaking behind it, and, and and I think for me is important. And the nine points you've made was also asking you the, the reflection of what do you want YouTube to do for you is essentially a repository of your videos, and you can point your clients to it. But it shouldn't be a source of revenue because the moment you want this to become a source of revenue, you are entering the world of media production. But perhaps that is not at all what your business does, and it's a bit like. You, you using the term AdSense then takes me back to the early days of blogging, where people were blogging and trying to squeeze in as many adverts as they could linked to the keywords, hoping to be an absolute fortune. And of course, uh, it never happened unless you were an author, unless you were a journalist. And of course, the, the blogging be became your, your, your platform. I think what we're going to see across all environments, YouTube, the metaverse, Facebook, threads, you know, Twitter. I think we're going to see people just getting a little wiser. It's going to start to rationalize itself. People are going to calm down. But it's also, you know, clearly there's still far too much of that, you know, very bombastic headlines and promises about if you go online, you don't have to put the work in to make yeah. an absolute fortune. And, and I can't wait for this, this nonsense to, to go away. No, I think, um, I mean, you are a filmmaker and you've, you've um, produced um, cinema quality films. I'm, I'm, I'm a vlogger with a DJI um, a Pocket 2. But, you know, don't underestimate the amount of work that goes into filming a 15-minute vlog. You know, you've got to film it. I I obsess about the colour, so I make sure that the colour grades, you know, if I take one shot from one angle and another from another and the lighting's different, I'll try and correct it. Now, I, I imagine that most people who watch the videos really wouldn't even notice at all, but it's just the way I am. I, I'm just a bit of a perfectionist like that. You know, I select the music, I, I do the editing, I uh, then I write the notes and everything. So 
putting together a, a 10 minute video is it takes a lot of work and and like a lot of things we've always say on this show there's no shortcut you can't bypass that hard work no and and you can't bypass the reflection prior to do anything which is the audience the subject matter you want yeah. to be helping them with and so on so all that pre-production work which i know sometimes is nowhere near as exciting i get it <laughs> as you know filming writing or doing uh, photography is so vastly important and, and i think some of the points you highlighted did remind everyone about this as well so pascal tell me about your content spotlight now, this one feels rather special, and, I, and I'm really unsure about how to approach it. So let me start by telling you about the title of this article. It's an interview. How has marketing changed over the past half century? And this is an interview with none other than Philip Kotler ah. and Alexander Chernov. And we're going to we have the co-authors of the 16th, 16th edition of the book, Marketing Management. Now, you heard a moment ago the reaction from Roger when I mentioned the term Philip Kotler. So actually, let's, let's start with that before I move into the article and the edition of the book. I mean, I went into the university in, in London, Brunel University. I took a business and marketing course. And of course, we were given an abridged version of an edition of marketing management. And honestly, that's probably the only module I remember was the, the marketing bit. We did everything else in the business, admin, finance, and so on. But to read and learn about the theories and the case studies from Philip Kotler co-authors was just wonderful. And to this day, you and I still talk about those key principles. Absolutely right. I mean, Kotler is, is one of the marketing godfathers, isn't he? And, and did you study as well or read his books back in the days? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can remember talking about Kotler when I was at university um, and, and reading a lot of his stuff in my early days as a marketing assistant and um, assistant product manager. For me, I, I sometimes stumbled upon some of his talks from maybe 10, 20 years ago, and I just watched them because, and there's just him on stage with a flip chart and there's no gimmicks and he really knows this stuff. And th th this kind of article was prompted by what I'm seeing a lot on LinkedIn, interestingly, from, well, I'm going to be frank, Roger, younger marketers who are saying to be dismissive of our generation, saying we, we slow things down, we're not innovative enough. There were some bizarre, bizarre biased views about how directors are far too old and we should kick them out of the boardroom and let people <laughs> like me. Um, and then in response, you know, on LinkedIn, you'll say, well, all you're doing is peddling gimmicks. You don't know anything about strategy. So we're going to settle things down. But in terms of um, Philip Kotler himself, he turned 92 only a few months ago and he's still busy doing, you know, his thing. Um, you mentioned he's an author consultant. He's a distinguished professor of international marketing at the Kellogg School of Management. And together with Alexander Cherner, who's also professor of marketing at the same school, they worked on the 16th edition of Marketing Management. This was published for the first time in 1967. Wow. It's just absolutely incredible. So um, I'm torn between nostalgia and you know the fact that this is someone that is very, very important, this bizarre movement online about you know trying to get let uh, suggesting people that you and i've got little to offer because oddly so it was, it was suggesting we don't understand ai and the metaverse and so on but here we are so what i'm going to do just to kind of whet people's appetite and for them to follow the high the link into the show note i've taken some statements from the the interview that is designed to promote the the book 
and I'm going to ask for your reactions. Um, so it begins with a statement from Philip Kotler um, when he says, one of the key underlying ideas advanced in the very first edition, 1967, of the book, was that company actions must be driven by customers and their needs. The rise of big data, social media, and so on has changed nothing. And that is to say that the key purpose of any company is to create value for its customers. What has changed are the tools, but they are just tools. Without the sound strategy guiding their use, they can become a distraction from a company's core mission. I'll finish with two more statements relating to things we mentioned, particularly in the news. Um, Philip Kotler um, in the interview says, I'm wondering what's going to happen to in-store shopping. It is conceivable that you can get everything that you want without ever going to a store. So a store has to be special. You have to design a good experience. And then Alexander Chernov um, quote is as follows. A challenge with marketing is that in some companies, it's viewed too narrowly and limited to advertising and communication. Sounds familiar, Roger? <laughs> this creates a problem because marketing is a much broader discipline. And so it goes on. And please, please, please follow the link. Um, read the article. It's not very long at all. And if you haven't got yet a copy, no matter the edition of Marketing Management, do seek it out. Wow. I mean, I, talking about LinkedIn, I got involved in a conversation on LinkedIn. Just, I mean, this, this could have been purely done for this to, as a reaction to this but somebody was going on in linkedin saying marketing is changing so much every day these days that nobody can keep up with marketing anymore and and it's not possible to uh, to understand marketing and I, no 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 that is only true if your view of marketing is purely about the communications tactics of marketing because yes, we've got AI, we've got digital that's been, you know, over the last decade, we've got all sorts of apps coming out each day, we've got all sorts of platforms coming out each day. I agree that marketing tools, which you just said there in, your, in, in that statement, the tools change. Yes, we've got to keep up with the tools, but the basics, the basics, the customer focus, the segmentation, the positioning, the development of products and pricing of products, that is that strategical stuff that has not changed. It all starts with the customer. What do I say in my own book? Uh, it starts with a obsessive understanding of the customer, a deep, almost obsessive understanding of the customer. And the problem we have with a lot of marketers these days is that they've never been trained on that wider discipline. They're just advertisers. They're just communicators. They're just SEO people. They're not they're not embracing the full discipline. Now, it might not be their fault. They may not have been taught this. But if they are aware of it, then this head in the sand thing that says, oh, no, people who talk about strategy are slowing things down, that is BS. That is BS because you will not succeed if you only do tactics. You know, it's absolutely right that you and I should be defending the profession, our profession, that of our viewers and, and listeners. Uh, I just want to close uh, quickly, if you don't mind, with just reminding people about the full title of that book that is getting the 16th uh, edition. So market management, and then it follows analysis, planning, implementation, and control. And this book was short of 700 pages. Now, I'm going to ask people to read all that, but this structure 
you know, which is there to actually liberate your creative thinking so that you can come up with, um, you know, tactics we mentioned in the news like Lazy Boy and Desperados and many, many others that we've mentioned to you over the last three months. It's all there so that you have a blueprint to inform your colleagues to engage, you know, of course, your team members to implement th this, this kind of things. And I would go as far as saying that if on occasion um, the article mentioned uh, that Philip Kotler is a bit concerned about the um, removal of chief marketing officers, and instead we have some weird titles that we mentioned, like chief, chief growth officers and whatever that, that that's supposed to stand for. Marketing what saying, Yeah, yeah, or ninjas and or, or sort of. <laughs> and what, what he's suggesting is be be very, very careful. But also, I would go as far as saying that, because I've witnessed it and I've been uh, on the receiving end of it, where if you're in a board meeting situation where all the other, or the other functions are represented, you know, can you explain to me, Roger, why? Everybody has an opinion about your marketing campaign, but I wouldn't dare to criticize someone working as part of ops, HR, finance, and so on. So there's also something there for the managing director or the chairman to defend marketing as a function, to educate every single board members, and it needs to cascade down to the team in terms of what it is, which is not just, as I've heard people say, the pretty pictures department or advertising. No, and and one of the problems we have, Pascal, again, is that a lot of CEOs these days don't get what marketing is either, and therefore it, it percolates from the top down as well, unfortunately. But we're here, we're here <laughs> to make sure that this doesn't happen and we're going to carry on banging this drum until everybody understands that marketing is a much wider discipline much wider discipline very exciting much wider discipline very exciting thank you so much wow that was fun listen as we said before many a time none of this would be possible without the hard work of pioneers and visionaries of the recent and distant past it is time to move on to our next segment this week in history In 1939, the musical film The Wizard of Oz, starring Judy Garland, Ray Bulger, Burt Lahr, Jack Haley and Margaret Hamilton, opens at the Lowe's Capitol Theatre in New York City. In a few years later, in 1945, English author George Orwell publishes Animal Farm, the anti-utopian satire that became a classic. In 1981, IBM releases the first personal computer, the IBM 5150. Pricing started at $1,565, and the reaction from the public was overwhelmingly positive, with customers offering pre-payment with no delivery date. In 2005, the film Snakes on Plane is announced and becomes a major internet sensation, leading to New Line Cinema incorporating feedback from users, including catchphrases and imaginative deaths. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember that vividly, actually, how people were able to um, give literally Samuel L. Jackson lines to say on, on the film, which appeared, and to also let the the um, film directors know how they want people to die, which is actually quite, you know, quite gruesome. But we should maybe actually, I'm thinking out loud, include this in film marketing, because that was the very, very first one where there was a link between online audiences, internet users, and filmmaking. Uh, it, it, when you actually think about it, it's very hard to make a decent film on a plane, isn't it? Because there's not really very many places you can go on a plane you've got the aisle you've got the cockpit the galley and maybe some planes are big enough for them to be to have mm. a bit underneath where they there's like a kitchen downstairs or a or something but you know to create tension to create fear within that 
constrictive environment is actually very hard. Yeah, and I think the only time um, I would say it's worked is in the World War Z, if you remember that, mm, that moment. Mm. Uh, it's very similar where they're trying to stack up the, the suitcase to create a bit of a war which doesn't doesn't work at all. Um, I hope you don't mind, but I think it's important we spend some time on the first personal computer because we are where we are thanks to the IBM 5150. At the time, if memory serves, it had that kind of green monochrome screen and that, those very large, very large floppy disks and making absolutely, you know, the noise coming out of the fan, coming out of the, this computer was, was extraordinary. A little bit of research, because you mentioned the price, just over $1,500. That would be the equivalent to over $5,000 today's money. Mm. Um, I mean, thank God for, for IBM, because nobody at the time had the, 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 the might and I suppose the resources to, to attempt a personal computer, computers for universities and the army and education government, but you and I had to wait till this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I was um, I was still at school, obviously, in these days, and I remember these personal computers. Our science, one of our science teachers had it wasn't an IBM; it was it was a research machines three eighty Z, but very very similar sort of thing, and it, it was the only one. And and he was good enough to let students take them take it home at weekends to play with. Um, and you know, I used to do the, uh, the basic programming and trying to write computer games and things like that. And then I think along came the the um, the Commodore PET. I remember the Commodore PET. There was a TRS eighty. Who I can't remember who Tandy was the TRS eighty, wasn't mm. it? But yeah, the the IBM was the first one, uh, and that that that's effectively now why we all have PCs on our desks. I think for me, what what was um, interesting, you're right. You know, the it's almost like the first tele color television. Not everybody had one, and you had to, to have. But this idea of people got so excited that they offered to pay for something with yeah. no idea of when they were going to get it and the, the anticipation. But then you had the birth of the first, you know. Com personal computer clubs. I mean, I, we used to go to one with my dad and people used to share tips and hints as we are through the podcast. You know, back in the days, we used to have this kind of bizarre trading of cassette with different games and different <laughs> programs. And and of course, entire uh, kind of industry around magazines you know, dedicated to to computers and so on was born out of that. And, uh, and I just like in you know, this segment to just pose for a moment thinking, well, in 2023, I can do all the things I can do via you know, my laptop, thanks to something that was invented now a long time ago. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I, I I've always had that sort of affinity with with the development of computers. I used to get very excited when something new came out. So the aforementioned TRS-80, the Commodore PET, I remember. Then there was the Commodore 64, which was effectively a Commodore PET without the built-in screen. And then the obviously the, um, the Clive Sinclair computers, the ZX-80 and the ZX-81, massive, massive, massive strides forwards. Uh, and it's it's just nostalgia, but it, it's it's important because it, it's a foundation of, of the world we live in today. I remember when my father was trying to decide which computer to get. I mean, these were very small independent stores as well. This is not what we have nowadays, you know, with the Apple Store or Curry's and the others. You know, these were in, in independent retailers. So it was it was allowed and literally um, given 
four or five different computers to take home at the weekend. <laughs> yeah. And so suddenly the living room was full of this kind of uh, wonderful machines. And we were so excited with my, my brothers and literally spent the weekend trying by this one and the Macintosh, of course, and this and the other. And I decided on one and took the others back. I mean, I can't imagine that you could be able, you'd be able to, to take four or five different laptops to your home, Roger, and then decide which one you which like one best. Which one you want. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, one of my regrets, I've never seen The Wizard of Oz on the big screen. Yeah, I mean, it's, and a, I'm told it's, a, it's quite an experience. It's a milestone, isn't it? I, I mean, I can't believe it's it's uh, so old, that film now, coming up to 90 years old. Um, and it was a combination of black and white and colour, some quite impressive special effects for a film that old. You know, Indeed. it is an incredible film, incredible film. Not my favourite, I mean... It's one of those films I appreciate for its historical significance and for the production values. I, I wouldn't probably choose to watch it, but it's one of those films that if I flick through the channels and I come across it, I usually end up watching it. You know what I mean? No, and, and I think you're right. that the, the practical effects are, are just so clever, innovative, uh, proper in, in movie magic. Now, listen, I'm always so very fond of the, these trips down memory lanes, but... We must move on and get back to the present with the next segment, Marketing Tech and Apps. Okay, Roger, so what wonders from the internet have you unearthed to make our life easier as content creators? This week, I've come across two things that I want to talk about. They're sort of related um, because you can use them um, for videos. But the first one is called Opus Clip. Now, I have first thought we may have reviewed this before. But in fact, it turns out we've probably reviewed something similar. But basically, what Opus Clip does is it's AI-based. And it will take a long-form video, for example, an episode of Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, which usually run at around about an hour and 10 minutes, give or take. And it will use the AI to find parts of that video, and it will chop it down and create vertical videos for TikTok Reels and Shorts. And so I gave it a go, Pascal. Um, you get 90 minutes free to start with um, and then you can obviously pay for uh, for a, a, a subscription after that so I uploaded um, half of the last episode of um, two geeks in a marketing podcast and it gave me eight um, vertical videos back within about three hours and I was actually quite surprised by what a good job it did of them um no it didn't just say right here's a minute from the middle of the video and it just basically um chopped off the beginning and end and, and we had that minute it literally did edit bits together so there's a clip of you talking about x because last week we talked about mm -hmm. twitter and becoming x and all of that and it has created a, a 30 second video out of what you were saying but it has edited it because i can see the jumps so it hasn't just isolated you wow. talking for 13 minutes it, 13 uh, seconds it has actually edited it down uh, and, and it's it's not seamless because obviously it's a jump cut and your, your head moves a little bit as you would expect but it is actually a pretty remarkable job um so I think this is one to have a have a look at. If you are creating videos like Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, talking heads videos effectively, where 
you're, you're, you're doing interviews or discussions, it works absolutely perfectly. Now, they're, they're absolutely honest about it on the website and says, if you're a vlogger, a travel vlogger or a fitness vlogger or whatever it is, it's not going to work. We're not, our, it's not sophisticated enough to chop up a travel video or, or a cooking show video or something like that into segments. This is specializing in talking heads, but it's definitely, definitely worth um, looking at it for that 90 minutes free. And it may just convince you that you um, want to sign up for the full package. The second thing is is a new add-on to the Adobe Creator Suite, which, which again, I think we have mentioned before, it's called Adobe Firefly. And this uses generative AI to edit photographs. Now, I've seen a few people using this on uh, on YouTube videos, and it does look incredible, but it's like a lot of things. The ex I find these days is that the AI expectation that's, that you get is never really borne out in the reality when you get your hands on it yourself. So I've seen a few people on, on videos creating these masterpieces, you know, fantasy photographs of, of um, people stood on train platforms with swords and horses and stuff like that. And but when I try it out, it looks so obviously fake that I must I don't know what I'm doing wrong with the prompting or anything. But what I have found it, with this is a really interesting thing that's useful for, vid for videos. But just to give you an example, you could upload a photograph of you sat in your garden, and then you notice in the background the dustbins there or there's some washing hanging out. So what you can do is you can just highlight that part of the picture and type in and say, remove the washing or remove the dustbin, and it removes the dustbin. And it does a pretty good job of it. Sometimes you can see a little bit of fuzziness or something, or perhaps in the background you thought it might be nicer if there was a dog or a cat there so you can highlight a bit of the screen you can say add a ginger cat or <laughs> add a black dog and it does it and sometimes it doesn't get it perfectly right i mean i, I tried it the other day and the cat's eyes were a little bit lopsided so it, it, it obviously needs some work but as a as a basis it, it's interesting no but what the one thing that i did find is you know the famous glass shots that people use in films and we obviously see them in films like star wars to create a magnificent um uh, planetary uh vista or a mountain range or a deep chasm below the Death Star or something like that. But we know that the actor is actually stood on a tiny little platform surrounded by um, nothing, and they effectively put this glass shot in. Well, you can do this with the generative AI, because I noticed the other day, if I had been um, doing a talking head video, say, in the garden, and I'd noticed there was a dustbin in the background, I could then take a, a, a single frame shot of me in that video, import it into Adobe Firefly, say remove the um, uh, dustbin, and then effectively reinsert that corner of the video. And as long as I don't move myself into that corner of the video, then it would look like the dustbin wasn't there. Obviously, if I move too far over, my hand or my face would disappear underneath the glass shot effectively. But it's it, that would, to me, is a very interesting use for this generative AI photo thing, Adobe Firefly. It's also built into the latest version of Photoshop as well. So if you have taken some video and you would inadvertently 
take a photograph, uh, take video of something you didn't want in the shot, you could use this to effectively edit that shot out quite easily rather than having to painstakingly mask each and every frame, which is what we used to have to do before. I mean, both your options are just, I mean, I, I just can't wait to, to have a go at the Opus clip. I, I like that because it's also part of the, the tone of voice of vertical videos, you know, the, mm. the, the kind of jump cuts and, and moving along with, with, with yeah. the narrative. And the, those kind of removing or adding elements, I mean, it wasn't the Adobe Firefly, but I had another one on, on my phone when a few weeks ago I went to the Guns N' Roses concert in um, in Paris, present for my uh, sister. And w from the angle, when I was taking pictures of the scene, we had one of the massive speakers. I mean, they were like the size of a small house, you know, halfway through and it was really kind of a black dot you know in the middle of the picture and when i removed it ai actually completed the the, um, the state but also the guns and roses logo behind <laughs> that was masked by the speaker had been recreated oh. pretty pretty closely i mean you have to really look like you said to see the pixelation and, and fuzziness so so i think we're going to see more and more of that for for improvement uh, sadly it's also going to be used for other you know uh, yes. malicious use but there'll be ways and means to kind of control that well we've done it again maybe for the third or fourth time where you <laughs> and I by accident have chosen a similar theme for marketing taken apps because we never talked to each other before revealing our, our selection. So as is often the case, mine has been inspired by a recent conversation with a client who was asking about a review of their content marketing strategy and saying, you know, is there anything that I'm missing in the content marketing mix? And I said, well, I think out loud and putting me on the spot too, maybe you could do with more free downloads or, or, or kind of that type of giveaways, not checklists and templates. But the other thing that you do, you're very active on social media, but ultimately we need to accept that not everyone's going to be able to see your photos and, and videos. And what you should be doing is maybe a weekly, maybe a monthly roundup of not all, maybe your best, more popular photos and videos and create a very off-the-cuff vlog, something very disposable. You don't have to necessarily spend a lot of time on it and put it on, on YouTube. So, well, what do you have? Because my time is obviously very, very short. So, well, actually, something that we didn't have mentioned before on Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, there's an app called Quick by GoPro. And they have done a big, massive reset on the app itself. There's more templates, more music as you mentioned a moment ago, there's also now edit to music. So it would find the beat of the music and do the jump cut you mentioned a moment ago and the transition to the beat of the music, saving you an enormous amount of time for what is essentially, like I said, very disposable content. So quick back GoPro, who have now have a AI video assistant, is really worth your while. But I thought I should do my job and give them options. So, of course, uh, I went online and I came across this uh, platform called Comeo. I've never heard of it before. I clicked on the link and then I was taken to Vimeo. I thought, oh. well, I've got that wrong. So I go back a step. I see the page for Comeo. I click on the link and back on Vimeo. And so it happens that Vimeo has bought them some oh. time ago. And here I am rediscovering the completely redesigned video editing experience and platform of Vimeo. You know, I mentioned it about a year ago. I am a video account holder, but I just upload videos and I don't really use them for video editing. And I have to tell you, I was really, really impressed. I think that if you do have an account as I have where you pay your monthly fee and you want to do some very quick, fast editing for something, again, that is not going to have a particularly long shelf life, you should definitely go on to vimeo.com forward slash video hyphen editor. They've got templates, they've got different sizes, they can also 
using AI spot moments where there's motion to kind of do some very interesting things. And I thought that's definitely worthy of your consideration as part of your toolkit. But as you mentioned a moment ago, these are just tools. You need to have a good strategy to inform your decisions moving forward. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Vimeo is always one of those platforms that I forget about um, and, and then get reintroduced at just to it just like you have um because it, one of the one of the advantages of vimeo is a lot of people do use it a bit like youtube don't they as a, as a way of hosting videos but if you if you upload a video to youtube um and then maybe a week later you notice that you've put a typo in your um caption slide or something you can't go back and re-upload the corrected video to that YouTube. It's such a pain, isn't you know, it? Yeah. Basically, they once it's uploaded, you've, you've, you're going to have to leave it there, especially if it's got loads of views. Whereas with Vimeo, if you did the same thing, you came across a mistake, they would allow you to retain the notes and everything and, and just upload the, the corrected version. That's a massive advantage because if you have, for example, as I have um, videos from Vimeo, uh, embedded on your blog, you can keep the same URL and everything else. But also, yeah. which is why we use it, as you know, at the end of a Vimeo video, it starts at the beginning again. It doesn't make suggestions of mm. other videos on YouTube could include the competition. So, yeah. you know, we mix it up. But yeah, I, by accident, literally rediscovered the fact that Vimeo have completely redesigned their video editing platform and is really worth a try. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, Roger, we have reached the final segment of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. Let's face it, probably one of our favorites, film marketing, just after this. So, Roger, you chose Heat, 1995, directed by Michael Mann. And for me, what is interesting about this movie, it is almost like a power story of focus and determination for both the director and filmmaker, because we're going to learn about the history of, of Heat, but also, of course, the story of the characters themselves, some based on real characters from a few decades ago. But before we move on to our discussion, let's watch the trailer. on the street, have no attachments, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. In the city of Los Angeles. Recognize the MO? MO is that they're good. If you think these guys are scoring once and passing through, I doubt it. A relentless police detective is on the trail what do we got? of a master thief. You're fugitive number one with a bullet. It's double the risk here. You're wrong. It's four times the risk, and I'm double the worst trouble you ever had. Clear! And his reckless partner. The bank is worth the risk. You should take it down. I want full surveillance. 24 hours, round the clock. We never close open seven days a week. Assume they got our phones, assume they got our houses, assume they got us. Bam, bye-bye. They get more daring with every score. What's the estimate? 12.2 million. You're on. But one cop. He's here. I can feel it. Is closing in. Whatever score they're going to take next, they're going to have the surprise of a lifetime. Now, for the first time, Academy Award winner Al Pacino and Academy Award winner Robert De Niro 
collide. If I'm there and I gotta put you away, I'll tell you, you are going down. What if you do got me boxed in and I gotta put you down? Because no matter what, you will not get in my way. I will not hesitate for a second. Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, in a Michael Mann film, Heat. Oh, do you know, that, that's again, that's one of those trailers from obviously almost 30 years ago that has the voiceover, that has the voiceover. He's a cop that does this. He's a villain that does this. And he's the renegade. It's also, there's a little bit elements of cheesiness about it, isn't there? But I just love those old style trailers. I agree. I think the world would be a better place if most trailers were done like this because people are doing the, the reverse now. So they are modernizing trailers. So um, they would take a movie from the 80s and 90s and people who want to kind of stretch their editing skills say, well, here it is. Here's my version 2023 of the movie Top Gun, for example. You know? Yeah. Um, I think we should do the reverse. We should try and take a movie from quite recently and introduce the 80s and 90s style of The Voice. Yeah, hey, there's an idea for a YouTube channel. That, that would be different. That would fit the rules we were talking about earlier about doing things a little bit differently. <laughs> I remember seeing Heat at the cinema. And and I have to say, I was literally swept by the marketing campaign you want to discuss in a moment. So I, I kind of ate all of it. And I remember my memory, and it's interesting because it's a movie that I then owned on VHS cassette because we're in back to 1995. And I don't think I've seen it ever since. So... I yesterday found it on oh. Amazon. So it is now my watch list. I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait until I've spoken to, to Roger because I always get so excited and then <laughs> watch it again. But the, the, what I've retained is the feeling of being conflicted because I was almost, uh, eventually I didn't know who I wanted. I was rooting for the <laughs> cops or the, the baddies. Did, did, it was weird, wasn't it, to be in that situation where because Michael Mann, which is, he does it so well, it takes you into the people element of the story. I I was absolutely gutted when they, you know, well, I want to reveal too much, but hey, I was conflicted. I wanted both of them to do well. And of, of course, that's not possible. Yeah, I mean, we know that Michael Mann focuses a lot on character. Um, for those of you who don't know Michael Mann, he was famous for Miami Vice, um, obviously a very stylized show, great music, great sets, costumes, um, fashion, that sort of thing. And also he was responsible for a film called Manhunter, oh, wow. which was actually the first film that had Hannibal Lecter in it, but played by Brian Cox, I think I'm right in saying, well before Anthony Hopkins played Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. So that's a, that's perhaps a film for another day. But mm. I think that this film is an incredible character study. Uh, I mean, you've got the, you've got the lead cop played by Al Pacino and the lead villain played by Robert De Niro, but they're, they're surrounded by colleagues as well. So there's a number of villains, there's a number of cops. And I think what works in this film is that he builds up the backstory of their personal lives so well. I mean, the cops got a daughter who's suicidal, his marriage is falling apart. Um, the, the villain uh, has got this philosophy that he will not get involved in anything, which means he wouldn't be able to walk away from it 
within 30 seconds if he feels the heat, the heat from the title coming round the corner. And then, of course, he breaks that rule by falling in love with somebody during the film. But it's such, I think it's because we get sucked so well into the lives of the protagonists that you get that conflicting feeling, Pascal, because you're effectively rooting for both the cop mm. and for the thief. You want them both to win, but obviously you know that one of them is going to end up losing. And and I think that that is the, one of the master strokes of this film. It's action-packed. There's lots of good action in it. There's a lot of violence in it, of course, but it is... A, on the whole, a very, very well-crafted character study. And for me, uh, when, when you're a fan, of course, you know you, you research, you read up. I mean, I'd forgotten that Malcolm and even did The Last of the Mohicans. That's something yeah, that escaped yeah. me completely. Yeah. Uh, recently, we, I rewatched again Collateral, um, yeah. which is, again, just, just that. And the only one kind of... Um, the only style that I've seen that would do that is probably the Hong Kong cinema genre, you know, mm-hmm, when they, mm-hmm. they, they came out with things like Hard Boiled and all the others, where you, you have both sides being essentially showcased in equal measure. And then it was, you know, for the, the, the ultimate kind of um, clash at, at the end. And for me, I mentioned it was about focus and determination because you've done the research and I was absolutely aghast to, to learn that. The, the idea or heat, you know, literally came out of uh, something that Michael Mann compiled together in 1979. Yeah. And I think that um, he had this idea for this, this film, this character study of the cop and the thief and all of their personal lives and all of their um, colleagues. And he's had this for a long time. It was originally based upon an actual true story of, of, a, of a villain called Neil McCauley, um, who was a, an ex-Alcatraz inmate um, who was planning robberies. And he was tracked down by a detective called Chuck Adamson in 1964. And Mann wrote a 180-page draft of this film that eventually became Heat and started offering it around all the... Um, the studios and he wasn't very successful and we, we've it's interesting this is a theme that comes up on the show quite a lot these people who have these visions for films and it takes them a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of um, disappointment before somebody actually picks it up but in the end what happened is following the success that michael mann had with miami vice uh, and crime story he was then asked to produce a pilot for a TV show based upon the Los Angeles Police Department Robbery and Homicide Division. So he used a very truncated version of his script for Heat to create this pilot, which was actually called LA Takedown in the end. And effectively, it's the same story, the same characters, but what he did is he stripped out all of those character studies. So effectively, what we got was the action scenes and a little bit of the backstory, but not to the same length depth. I mean, LA Takedown, I think, was a 90-minute pilot when it was shown um, on TV. 
whereas Heat, the film, is is just shy of three hours long. So you mm. can see how much you, you cut out of it. But he effectively almost like had a dry run of creating this film <laughs> called L.A. Takedown. Now, it was a, it, you know, there was a different actor playing uh, the role of Vincent Hanna that Al Pacino eventually took on. It was Scott Plank that took that. Um, Alice, Alex MacArthur played the character of Neil McCauley, but it was renamed to Patrick McLaren in L.A. Takedown. And they filmed it in 19 days, which... Very unusual for Michael Mann as well because he's such a perfectionist. Usually, he will, um, you know, take a long time to to film a film. So the, this film effectively had already been made. He'd already piloted it himself, and then eventually he got the the go ahead to turn it into the film that became Heat, and that's when he re expanded it back out. And it became the film that we that we've we've enjoyed the three hour film, and 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 again that he went into so much trouble for nine months. Pascal in the run up to filming, M- Michael Mann went out every Friday and Saturday night with an LAPD officer called Tom Elfment, and he was out there responding to emergency calls all over the city just getting a feel for the sort of dialogue that you would expect policemen to have and the, the dispatchers and the, and the dialogue coming through from the, um, the villains and all that. And that's why the film is absolutely so compelling and so realistic. And in, interestingly enough, because you spent so much time out in Los Angeles, is that Los Angeles itself and the way that he shot it Los Angeles becomes a character in its own right. The way he showcases the city with the the cinematography and the music is absolutely staggering. And and just as an aside, if you think back to another Al Pacino film that we've reviewed here on Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, Sea of Love, uh, which we did a while back, Sea of Love was Al Pacino's comeback movie. It was released in 1989, so six years before this. Al Pacino actually plays a very, very, very similar cop in both films. But if you remember when we did the review of Sea of Love, we said that that New York almost took on this um, character because of the way it was shot and the way that the city at night particularly became this sort of this sort of dark place. And and I think Michael Mann achieved that with this film. So not only is it a character study, not only is it absolutely incredible from a um a cinematography and action point of view it's also a beautiful highlight for this city and what you're just mentioning was picked up a lot in the in the marketing effort i mean this mm. is almost mm. like method acting uh, we mentioned you know in the contents portline this need to understand your customers to analyze and so on yeah and it was clear to him that there was no way they could do something that would really completely suck the audience into this universe and make everybody and all the characters uh, believable if they just played pretend for the better part of three hours. So the the actors went on boot camps, real boot camps, yeah. and they learned how to talk, how to walk, like, you know, um, depending which uh, side they were, the police or or the thieves, they uh, handled guns. Um, we'll, we'll talk a moment about you know how they used that as well as a hook for for some of the, of, of the marketing. So the pre-production side, once again, you know, a lot of work's gone into it. But I have to say that when you and I went to the big screen to see 
Los Angeles, particularly at night, I, I would agree with you. But then you realize that they borrowed some of that uh, tapestry and color palette for the marketing effort. You kind of go, there's nice cohesion there. It, it sounds to make a lot of sense to me, but that's right. You know, if you want results, you've got to put the work in and, and um, you know, back to focus and determination. It takes time. Yeah. Now, we've seen the trailer. The poster, again, is actually mainly focused on the fact that this is the first time that Al Pacino and Robert De Niro have appeared in a film together. They they quite um, weirdly stick Val Kilmer in the poster as well. I'm not sure why. I would have probably kept Val Kilmer out of the poster. Oh, I have to tell you exactly why. This is uh, an agent <laughs> negotiating very, very hard. Ah. Uh, if I may just uh, interject, so... I think you're right, and we'll come back to the Al Pacino and um, Robert De Niro face self. But uh, interestingly, for me, when I went to the cinema, I was like, well, I, I kind of know what's going to happen because those two amazing stars are going to be, they're going to do what they do best. So I was actually very intrigued about what Val Kilmer was going to do. You know, it was kind of just coming out of doing The Doors and in a few of the movies. Um, so actually, as a movie goer, I was quite keen to see what Val Kilmer was going to do. And I think once you got to the point where, you know, it's almost like screen time. I said, well, I got a minute. You know, there's a third and even fourth character. If you want to add Time Sizemore and John Voight that we need to kind of squeeze in. But I reckon he had a very good agent at the time. Uh, that was it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that because of the power of Pacino and De Niro, I'd have kept Val Kilmer <laughs> out of the poster. I, I mean, I think the marketing for this film really focused on two main things. The first one was this fact that Pacino and De Niro were going to be in the film together, first time that they've appeared in a film together, and there's going to be this scene of them cop versus villain sat in a cafe basically just having a talk like they were old buddies and and i love that line in the trailer which says for the first time academy award winner al pacino and academy award winner robert de niro collide i mean that is just cheese but it's absolutely <laughs> spot on isn't it and and that scene that scene of them in the coffee shop having the chat they actually decided to film it almost without rehearsal so that mm. it, would, it would come across as naturally as it possibly could. And, yeah, you know, these these guys are the opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got the cop, you've got the villain, and it's the, jo it's the job of the cop to take down the villain. But the way that these two people effectively respect each other for how well they do the 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 opposite job so the villain respects the cop and the cop respects the villain and they almost have this grudging affection for each other it's almost like a bit of a bromance isn't it in that in that scene and yet we know that ultimately if they have to they'll both try to kill the other mm -hmm. when 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 the chips are down I remember not so much the poster, but the cover of the VHS cassette. But um, looking at the poster now, because my memory is that how blue it was, but in a good mm -hmm. way, you know, mm -hmm. because all that to symbolize Los Angeles at night and, you know, the, the blue lights and, and so on and so forth. But when you look at the, the poster, I think it's very interesting, back to your point about Los Angeles being made a, um, a character, and we know, you know, enough about the pre production work of doing location scouting, which is a job I'd love to do. Yeah. I and mean, about looking for locations. 
things. But, you know, you've got heat. And then below, one of the many strap lines, the one that was used was a Los Angeles crime saga. So both mm. positioning, um, you know, the, the place element, but also some people. Um, yeah, it's a long movie. You know, for 1995, I can't I can't be sure how often you had movies, nearly three hours long. But mm. they wanted to make sure that this, this is going to take you on the journey. Yeah, and I think that so the one ang- the, the the first angle of the marketing was that big Pacino De Niro confrontation, and that's what I remember from the from the TV interviews at the time. That's what I remember. Any any um, reviews of the film that came out around the time, or any discussion in magazines like Empire, focused on that confrontation but i think the other element of the marketing that i do remember is actually focusing on michael mann himself because at the time you know we this was post miami vice and miami vice is one of the most iconic 1980s tv series isn't it Mm. you know the the don johnson suits the fashion the music uh, the Jan Hammer music, the the locations, the glamour of of um, of uh, Miami. Michael Mann had this reputation for that sort of slick style, and for capturing the ethos of a city or and and the fashions and the statements. And I remember at the time were a lot of focus on that. And this is so the message was: this is the guy who brought you Miami Vice. Let's mm-hmm. see, let's see how he effectively interprets Los Angeles in the same way as he interpreted Miami. Uh, and it's a shame that none of that survives. I looked for it, but I just couldn't find anything more than references to the fact. But I do remember at the time a lot of talk about how Michael Mann had this way of extracting style and fashion and and vibe out of a place when he was focusing his films. My memory, born out of the um, the magazine that I used to read, there was a magazine at the time which has gone online called Impact Magazine. Mm-hmm, and it was mm-hmm. focused on action movies. It's just why there's a strong correlation between uh, what was happening in Hong Kong at the time and what Michael Mann did. And I remember vividly the gunfight mm-hmm. being praised and commented upon quite extensively, saying, you know, if you're going to go into this film for another reason, but you've got to go and see it for the gunfight. And at the time... Andy McNabb was being mentioned a lot as being warned of the consultant and uh, fight gunfight choreographer who took obviously the, the actor through the through the boot camp. There was a lot of interviews with him. Um, Andy McNabb essentially uh, shot to fame for the Bravo Two Zero book, which was mm-hmm. made into a TV series, TV series, if I'm not mistaken. So there's also um, so you had the connotation of a dialogue point of view that was highlighted, and there's a bit of it in, in the trailer. But there was also the almighty gun battle that was also highlighted as part of the marketing yeah and of course what i didn't know about the gunfight was that most gunfights in most films they will add the sound effects of the gunshots later uh, because a lot of the time they shoot they're, they're filming from a distance and, and this but they actually took the trouble to mic up as much of the location as they could. So they had microphones in close proximity to the guns. They had microphones out in the streets. So the sounds we actually hear are the actual sounds of the guns firing. Um, and that that soundscape that he created during that gunfight is one of the reasons why it's so powerful, because it was real, as opposed to the sort of fake gunfight sounds that we normally get in films. And, and I think that's possibly one of the reasons why it 
it is so outstanding a sequence is because you're basically right in there with the sounds and the action. Yeah, but then there were some very confused audiences. I remember vividly <laughs> uh, saying, that, sound, that gunfire, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> because well, people have been yeah. so used to, to the fake effects. So, yeah. I, I mean, I remember laughing, saying, well, of course, it's it's a real thing. I mean, of, there were blanks for sure, but the sound was captured. People say, well, it's, it's, it doesn't sound um, right, this gunfight. And I was I was told it was going to be amazing. So I think to the point, though, his work about, you know, being as realistic as possible through spending time with the police to describe, to capture, you know, the, the vocabulary of, uh, of, of uh, the police force, but also the thieves and, and capturing and taking into the, this environment so much so that it's been talk many a time about a sequel mm. which is now a conversation about a prequel so but i, I you know I, th I think there's definitely something that audiences will, will go for um but again for me because it was 1995 and because it was a big screen experience I would rather this to be made for theatres as opposed to a Netflix or Amazon Prime financed endeavour. What do you think? Oh, yeah, this is definitely, definitely a, a big screen film to, to watch because of the characters and because of the city. You have to see the city and in all its splendour and the way that it was shot and lighted. It just has to be a big, a big screen or a, or a, a you know, the even bigger screen, the IMAX screen. <laughs> the actually, IMAX, it really yeah. needs, yeah, it yeah. really needs something like that. No, I, I mean, undoubtedly, I, I didn't rewatch Heat, um, in a, in anticipation as I was talking about it today. We, it's probably only about a year ago since we last watched it. But having spoken to you now, we do have the DVD. I will dig the DVD out. We will probably end up watching it over the weekend. Oh, it's on the watch list on Amazon, as you heard a, yeah. a moment ago. Listen, well done again. You know, as you always do this, you know, your, your selection is just absolutely spot on for the marketing because it allows us to reminisce, but also to capture those marketing lessons about back to focus. You know, you only have three or four hooks just lean on to them to squeeze the value out or they don't have to bombard the audience with multiple messages <laughs> in different different platforms and maybe there's something in there you know we mentioned about the voice for the trailers but also uh, compared to today the scarcity in terms of channels and mm -hmm. what you could play with that may have made the marketing on occasion just a bit sharper and wiser everyone this was episode 104 of two gigs and a marketing podcast thank you Rosa, for being an amazing co-host thank you to you for listening and watching please subscribe and leave your comments suggestions in the usual places until the next time go out there and make sure your marketing is on right with pascal pintoni and it was roger edwards mm -hmm.